I didn't mention this earlier, but the reason that we are in here is because uh, the AC unit, if you were with us last week, we were in here as well, but from Irma, um, the, the storm uh, took out one of the compressors in the AC unit there, and we're hoping to get it fixed this week. And uh, if you go in there and you want to experience hell, you can. Um, it's what it feels like inside of there. And so we, we're thankful that, uh, and grateful to God that we have a space with AC and, and we can squeeze everybody in here together and, and really feel like family. We were talking after last week, and I think you know, the beauty of, of kind of being close together is we all feel each other's energy, we hear each other, and it really feels like we're a church, you know? And so just gonna say this now, when we go back in there, you're going to hear me asking you to move closer together and actually sit in rows with more than two people, you know, because for some reason we like no more than two people in a row, you know, all the way back. But we're trying to be closer now that we're comfortable sitting near each other. And I think it's, it's really cool to be here together with you, all, you guys this evening. Um, can I get a, a round of applause for those people that were at Spin for Hope yesterday? Wow, that was awesome. So um, we, uh, we had a, a crew of people that came out. There was 15 of us that came out yesterday for Spin for Hope at Red Bike Studios. We partnered together with uh, Brickle Living, Red Bike, and Pipeline Workspaces, and we collaborated on having this event yesterday to raise money for Irma Relief. And uh, there's going to be some more ongoing things as well for Puerto Rico and for the earthquake in Mexico and Maria because there's been so many things that have been happening. Actually, we're also collecting supplies for Puerto Rico this evening, and we'll do that next week as well. And so if you want to bring non-perishables or clothing or bottled water, uh, we will be collecting that and uh, distributing it to Puerto Rico as well. We'll be looking for more opportunities to really care for our city and others as well throughout this week. But we gathered yesterday, we raised uh, together just one spinning class, we raised $700, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, we could, we could clap for that. And I'll tell you, um, I was real nervous, guys. I've, uh, I've never done a spinning class. Uh, I did not know what to expect. Um, I don't ride bikes. Um, I mean, I know how. But I didn't know what was going to happen, you know, so like I had nerves. I told somebody I was there, I was like, this is like first time preaching nerves, you know, like it, it was like something was going on and I was like, and then, and then we had people coming in, they looked like they were prepared. And I'm like, and I actually, I had a man yoga pants, that's what I call them, but I wear the shorts over top because I'm not crazy, you know, um, they're, I think they're, I don't know what they're called, but I felt like that helped me fit in, you know, so I came in, I got in there, they gave me shoes and I'm in this whole thing. So I get in there, and, and, and we're all together, we're in the class, and I got real excited because I realized there's going to be, like, music, and, like, good music. I mean, they're, like, bumping the music, the lights, and I think what happened was I got so in the zone that I didn't realize what I was doing. Now, let me tell you what I was doing. I don't know how the bike works. Like, I lock my feet in. I feel like, I mean, I'm about to, like, blast off here. Like, you know, I mean, we're going for it, and the, the coach kept telling me to turn the knob. I didn't know what the knob did, you know, but I just, I follow instructions, you know, so we're riding, we're riding, and she's like, two spins on the knob, I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, and then halfway through, I realized I've made a big mistake, guys, (laughs) the knob turns up the pressure on the bike, and I'm like, why am I having such a hard time moving my legs, am I this out of shape, and I, I realized I should not have turned the knob as much as she told me to, because I think that's for people that actually spin, you know, and cycle. So me and the bike had like a serious dysfunctional relationship going on. I'm looking around, I'm between Justin and Michael, and they're like really going for it. I'm like, I gotta go for it, you know, like I can't look real weak. And I mean, literally after I came home, I told Jessica, I was like, 
there's a strong chance I'm either preaching on a stool or laying down. <laughs> One of those two things may happen tomorrow night. <laughs> you know, but after that, I was, I was processing and, and thinking about tonight as, as we continue our series uh, in the book of Genesis now. Last week, we launched our series Overcome as an overshot, and we said, listen, the, the theme of this series is that we can overcome all things in Christ because Christ has overcome all things for us. And this evening, we're talking about dysfunctional relationships, not just a dysfunctional relationship between a bike and a spinning class because you don't know what you're doing and you're a rookie, but dysfunctional relationships that we have with coworkers, we have with family members, we have in romantic relationships, we have with our friends. So what I want to ask you to do as we kind of work through this text tonight is I want you to actually bring all of those dysfunctional relationships into your mind that you have, those coworkers, those friends, those family members, and I want you to think about those relationships and how you interact with them, how they interact with you. And I want to ask God as we bring those things together that he might illuminate to us how he's calling us to engage in those things, how we might find victory, how we might overcome the dysfunction in those relationships when we really trust his word. So tonight we're picking up in Genesis 25, and you can follow along in your worship program. Uh, if you have brought a Bible with you, be, it'll be on the screen as well. But it's important to understand what happened right before this. Okay, So right before this, in Genesis, Sarah and Abraham have passed away. Okay, So they have passed away, and the focus of our attention as readers of the text is now on Abraham's son, Isaac. And his new wife, Rebecca. And they're in this land, Padamaram, which is like the birthplace of the patriarchs. And so we're, we're wanting to focus on them and realize that they are now the ex they're extending out and continuing the covenant that God made with Abraham. Right? God and Abraham met. And there was a covenant that was enacted that was an eternal covenant. And it said the blessing of God would be on the descendants of Abraham. And that they would remember the story, if you've read it before, they would be like numerous as the stars in the sky. And so now Abraham has passed, and Sarah has passed, and Isaac is carrying this forward with his new wife, Rebecca. It's important also to understand this, and this can throw you for a loop. When you read this, it seems as if Abraham actually never knew his grandchildren. He, they never knew Jacob and Esau. But in fact, he did. See, Abraham... Um, actually passed away when Jacob and Esau were about 15 years old. But what's important to understand when you read the Old Testament especially is that Eastern literature arranges texts differently than we do. Like when we write, we write chronologically, right? And then we have flashbacks. Well, the way that it works here is they're wanting to give the emphasis on certain characters. And so right before this, Abraham has passed away, but he actually doesn't pass away until... Jacob and Esau are 15 years old. And the reason that this is important is because you need to understand that Jacob and Esau have spent time with Abraham. They know of the importance of the covenant that was made with him. They know of the importance of Abraham and his children and his children after him following after the things of God. But the author of Genesis, Moses, wants to direct your attention away from Abraham to Isaac and Rebekah as they continue forward the covenant that was made with Abraham. So here's where we pick up. It says, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, and the, the daughter of Bethuel Armenian of Padamaram, the sister of Laban the Armenian, to be his wife. And what you notice about this marriage, which it seems like a theme all throughout the Old Testament, is that this marriage was not easy. It was a difficult 
marriage, and the reason was is because Rebecca was barren. Right? She had infertility issues, and that is a struggle and is difficult for anyone that is struggling with that. That is such a hard thing to go through. But I want you to think for a second how it felt for her, right? For Rebecca and for Isaac. Because they are now the couple that is supposed to continue the covenant with Abraham that God made to have multiple descendants that would be blessed by God. And now Rebecca cannot have children. Imagine the pressure, right? The pressure to conceive for her because are they going to fail this covenant? Are they not going to be able to continue forward the covenant that God made with their grandfather, Abraham, with their father, with their father-in-law for Rebecca, Abraham, because they can't conceive. And so what Isaac does is he goes to God in prayer, asking for him to overcome this adversity, right? Here's what he says in verse 21. He says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, and she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You read this, right? And this happens a lot when you read the Old Testament especially, and you're like, don't I wish it worked like that, right? Like, it seems when you read it that Isaac says, my wife is barren, this is a real struggle, so I'm going to go to God and pray, and I'm going to ask for my wife to be able to conceive a child, and then, like, they only dealt with the anxiety and the stress of that for, like, a hot minute, because the next day, apparently she's conceived, right? It's how it feels. Like, you think to yourself, I really wish my prayers worked like that. You know, like, I've been, I've been praying for things for years, and it doesn't seem like God is answering them, and here it just says, he prayed for his wife, she was barren, the Lord granted, and Rebecca conceived. But see, it's important that you don't miss the small details in the text. Because what it says in verse 20 is that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. And then in verse 26, it says that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Meaning he prayed this prayer for 20 years. Feels different now, right? His wife was barren. He felt the anxiety and the stress and the pressure of being able to continue for this legacy that God has put over this family and he's been praying this prayer for 20 years and he's probably wondering like god do you love me are you here are you faithful i mean what is going on we talked about this last week right where we we come to read scripture and we know and we believe in our mind that god is good and that he's loving but then from our limited perspective when he doesn't engage in our life and act in the way that we want him to act in the time that we want him to act we think Maybe he's cruel. Maybe he's uncaring. But in fact, he's not, right? He, he acts at the exact moment at the right time to not only reveal his faithfulness, but to do so in a way that is good and loving for you from our limited perspective when we can't understand that he is. He empathizes with us in our weakness, and he actually does hear our prayers. And, and when he responds and when he acts, it is in fact good. And so they've been praying this prayer for 20 years, and God answers their prayers and gives Rebecca twins. And remember, there's no ultrasounds back then, right? So she doesn't know this. She just feels like something is off. She has that mother's intuition. She's like, this something peculiar is going on here. And so she does the same thing that Isaac does, and she goes to God in prayer. In verse 22, it says, The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? It's like another thing. Is everything okay? Is, are the, is the baby okay? So she went and she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her this, two nations are in your womb. You know, it's like that moment if 
if you've had children where you go and do the ultrasound, it's like one heartbeat or two, and you're like, please don't be six, right? And, and God says that there are two babies in your womb. There are two nations, and two people from within you are going to be, they're going to be divided. So she, she's given some comfort, right? Like what you feel, you feel something's off. You have twins. That's what you're feeling. You're noticing that it's peculiar. You're talking to your friends, and they haven't had the same experience. Well, you have twins, but... But then she hears that the children are going to be divided. There's going to be a struggle and a battle between them. And God then tells her that the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And this must have been difficult for her because this is not the custom, right? The custom in this time is that the firstborn would have the birthright. And so what they would have is they would have the privilege and the honor of the family. They would receive the most blessing and honor and rewards because they were then the protector and the leader of the family. And, and the Lord is declaring something very strange. He's saying, in, in this case, with your children, they're not only going to be struggling with each other, but the younger is actually going to lead the older. And she's processing this, and she's thinking about this. And, and what we're going to see in the life of Jacob, who is the younger is that God is consistently gracious and faithful to him, and yet he does not deserve it at all. He actually tries to do everything to not receive it, but God is consistently and continually good, and he's consistently faithful, and he's consistently gracious to Jacob because God has chosen to pour out his favor upon the younger. There's a very deep theological truth that's happening here in this statement where it says, the older shall serve the younger. And that's this, that the mercy and the favor of God is not determined by your good works. It is not determined by the family you're born into. It is not determined by the position in the family, whether you're the oldest or the youngest. It is actually not determined by anything you can do. It is simply determined on whether or not God chooses to pour out his grace upon you. Right? Jacob has done nothing. He is not even born yet. And God is telling Rebecca that he is going to be favored. He is going to receive grace. He's going to be the leader of the family, not your oldest, who will be Esau. And even in his life, as Jacob does all these different things that you think would cause God to say, okay, favor directed somewhere else. God continues to pour out his favor upon Jacob. And this is something difficult for us uh, to swallow, right? Because here's what this means. It means that we don't live in a world where all possibilities are open and available to us. Think about that for a second. That means that we do not live in a world where all possibilities are open and available to us. Right? This is what we think, right? We think to ourselves, you know, everything is open and available to me. All I have to do is access it. All I have to do is work hard to achieve it. All I have to do is figure out how to create and generate my breakthrough so I can get to that thing that is available and open to me. Culture tells us this, right? Maybe you've heard this before. I don't know what, I've, I'm starting to learn what a meme is. It's like a picture with text on it. I'm guessing this is a meme. It says, you ever heard this? People say this, create your own destiny. Have you heard that before, right? Create your destiny. That's, so, that's a paradox, right? Destiny is something that's necessarily going to happen. 
So how do you create something that's necessarily going to happen? See, what's happened for us in our culture is we've redefined destiny. Destiny is no longer what's necessarily going to happen because we believe every possibility is open and available to us. Destiny is the hidden power within you, right? You have this hidden power inside of you, and as long as you access it and you achieve a breakthrough, you can create your own destiny. Now, it's important to, to nuance this a bit, right? Like, it is really important to work hard. When you work hard, you get good results. Discipline creates great things and positive things. If you're a positive thinker, you're going to be motivated, right? It's going to be good for mental health. If you care about your diet and you care about exercise, it is going to have positive effects on your body. So it is not wrong to say, it's, I need to be more disciplined. I, I need to be more focused on my work ethic. I, I need to eat better. I need to work out. It's, it's not bad to believe these things and to think about things that you might improve in your life. But the difference is you, we fall into thinking that if we do these things, we can control our destiny. But we know this can't happen, right? If we really take a moment and think about it, we know that we can't control our destiny because things happen that have happened this month, right? Like Irma and Harvey and Maria and earthquakes. And it does not matter what you do. There's no way you can control that, right? You can't control that. We can't control the winds and the rain. We can only prepare for them, right? We cannot control disease. We can only fight it. We cannot control opportunities that are given to us. We can only take advantage of them, right? There's a difference there. And what is coming out here in regards to faith and regards to spirituality is that you cannot control God's favor and his love and his grace. You can only respond to it. There's a difference there. John 15, 16 says this. This is Jesus' words. He says, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you. Right? You didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you. Meaning, I poured out my grace and my favor and my love upon you. And you have responded. You didn't work hard to earn it. It's not because you were born in this certain family. It's not because you decided to get more disciplined. I chose you. I decided to pour out my grace upon you. As a biblical scholar of Brueggemann that says this. This affirms that we are not fated to the way the world is presently organized. Read that again with me. This affirms that we are not fated to the way the world is presently organized. See, what he's saying here is that there is destiny. However, our destiny is not something that we create. It's not something that is open and available. We just have to figure out how to access it on our own. Our destiny is to be surrendered to and submitted to the grace and the goodness of God. That is where we find in, in our destiny. That's when we can look at our, our circumstances in our life. We can notice that things are, this relationship is dysfunctional. This is not the way that I wanted it to be. And we don't have to believe that it's always going to be like that because we're surrendered to the grace and goodness of God who will pour out his favor upon us and the relationship's that we have. And this is what happens in this story here with Jacob. God has chosen to pour out his favor upon Jacob. And so it's time for Rebekah to give birth. And here's what it says. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red and all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. 
right? It literally, Esau means like a hairy monster, right? So can you imagine that conversation when he grows up? Like, hey, mom and dad, why'd you name me Esau? And, and you know, Isaac's like, it's because you're a hairy beast, brother. You know, he's like, wow, okay. And then afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. He's the younger, and his name was to be called Jacob. See, Jacob's name means like heel clutcher. So as he's coming out, he's holding on to the heel of Esau. But it's actually more dynamic than that because you look at this like Isaac, Rebecca, like have a little creativity. You know, like this baby's hairy, Esau. This baby's holding the heel, Jacob. Like, wow. Jacob's name not only means heel clutcher, it also is a shortened name in the time period that means God rewards and God protects. So his name means heel clutcher, but his name means God rewards and God protects, which is a fulfillment, as we're going to see in his life, of God's promise to him, right? That he's going to pour out his favor upon Jacob simply because he has chosen to. Even though Jacob will lie and he will be self-reliant and he will seek to tarnish the name that he's been given, God will consistently be faithful And so the boys grow up, right? And by this time, Abraham has passed away. This is past the time that they're 15 years old, and they're growing up. And and you can imagine the time that they spent with their grandfather. I picture, you know, little Jacob and Esau sitting on Abraham's lap, and he's speaking about how God has called their family out and how this family is called to follow after God and, and to trust in him. And how there's this covenant that's been made and they are the fulfillment of that and they're going to continue going forward and God is going to bless their descendants as they grow up and have families. And he speaks to them about all of these things. And these are two very different boys. They're very different, right? That's what God tells Rebecca, that there's going to be a rivalry between them. They're going to struggle with each other and they're very different. Here's what it says about Esau. He was a skillful hunter. He was a man of the field. So he hunted wild animals, and he was really good at it, probably because he was a hairy beast, and he just kind of blended in, you know? (laughs) They thought he was one of them, and he was wonderful at capturing animals. And then it says, Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. He doesn't necessarily mean that Jacob was an introvert. He may have been an introvert. You read that, and you're like, he was a quiet man, so maybe that means he's an introvert. What it actually means is that he was civilized and cultured. And so... He, he tended to the sheep. Those were the animals that he spent time with. And he was thoughtful and he was analytical. And he was a civilized man. He, he wasn't going to go hunt wild animals. He wasn't about that life. He wanted to stay in and around the house. He wanted to learn and, and to be thoughtful and analytical. And their, their character stands in contrast of each other. And then in verse 28, it says something that we don't expect. It says that Isaac loved Esau... Because he hated ate of his game. Now, why is this interesting? Because God has told Rebecca, who is who is communicated surely with her husband, that Jacob is going to receive the favor and the blessing of God. But Isaac loves Esau more because Esau is able to kill and to bring wild animals that he enjoys eating. And so he's disregarding what God has said just because he likes meat <laughs> and delicious exotic meat. Which is interesting because if you think about the different men in the Old Testament, Adam fails by eating of a fruit, Noah fails by drinking wine, and Isaac fails by eating wild game, right? This constant theme of eating and taking of things that causes 
a failure and, and a fall. But Rebecca loved Jacob. She holds on to this proclamation and of God's calling and chosenness of Jacob. And you can see and understand that this family is very dysfunctional, right? The brothers are very different. They are warring between each other, very different personalities. And you can understand that they don't really get along. And the parents have picked favorites, right? This is not a family that is full of stability. There is a lot of tension here. And it leads to a family fallout. Here's what happens in verse 29. It says, Jacob was cooking stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. He's been hunting all day. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. So the way the text reads is that he legitimately was exhausted. He was probably starving. He's been out hunting. He's been bringing in food for the family. He's, who knows how far he's traveled to come back, and now he is starving. He is hungry. And he walks in, and his brother Jacob, who is cultured and civilized, has probably imported spices from all over, and he's spending all day marinating this soup, you know. I just learned about a guy that's also a mean that does like a salt thing. You know, he's probably doing that, throwing the salt down. He's doing the whole thing. And Esau walks in, right? And Esau smells this smell of this delicious soup. And, you know, you know, you know what happens when you're really hungry and your stomach starts turning, right? And so he, he wants some of this. And his brother's been preparing it. It's like a perfect meal, this red lentil stew after a, a long, hard day or many, many, many days of, of hunting animals. And this is an opportunity for Jacob to love his brother, right? He's been working on the stew. He can't eat it himself. And his brother's hungry, so he's going to pour him a bowl and give it to him. But what does Jacob do? He sees an opportunity to exploit his brother, right? He says this in verse 31. He said, sell me your birthright. So his brother walks in, he's like, smells so good, Jacob. Jacob, you're such a great cook. I love those spices and the salt and the whole thing. Can I have a bowl? And he's like, sell me your birthright. See, a birthright is really important to understand what that means. It's given to the firstborn, and it means that you have rights and privileges in the family. You also receive a double portion of the inheritance, and you are given a higher status over the rest of the siblings in your family. But it also comes with great responsibility. You don't only receive honor and privilege and rewards and blessings. You also are charged with being the leader and the protector of the family. And in this instance, it also comes with something else, which is apprehended by faith. It's that you are the one that is going to carry forward the Abrahamic covenant. That that is following you as you hold this birthright. And see, what you notice here is that Jacob appreciates and has a very well-grounded understanding of the importance of the birthright. He understands its value. He understands how important it is. And he wants it. He springs forward like this shrewd businessman to take it from his brother bursting with ambition. And he tells him, if you want some of this stew, you're going to have to give me your birthright. You see, what we notice about Jacob is that he has the right value of the birthright, but he has the wrong method. Right. It says that Esau, who, as we said before, is, is thoughtless, right? And he's lacking faith. He doesn't understand the value of the birthright, and he just kind of gives it away. He says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So Jacob says, swear it to me now. So he swore it to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And in that moment, it was done. It was irrevocable. The birthright has now been transferred from Esau to Jacob, and this can happen. This has happened in other situations in the Old Testament as well. 
because Esau wanted to be immediately satisfied. And Jacob, who had a healthy understanding of the birthright, wanted to prolong his satisfaction, but he had a method that was deceptive and a, a method that was looking to take advantage of his brother. And so Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate it, and he drank, and he rose, and he went his way, and thus Esau despised his birthright. You can imagine um, how much dysfunction this is going to bring into the family as we go forward, right, in the rest of this series. Not only between Esau and Jacob, but as the whole family gathers together between Isaac and Rebekah, it is going to bring a lot of, a, of failure and a lot of destruction and dysfunction to this family. So the question is, in this story, right, the theme for today is overcoming dysfunctional relationships. And I've asked you to bring all the dysfunctional relationships that you have in your mind, co-workers and friends and family members and romantic relationships. What are we to learn from this? Like, What can we glean from this? Well, there are two things that we can learn not to do, and there's one thing that the text reveals to us that we can follow. And the first is this, that we're not to do. Do not follow Jacob's example of taking opportunities to advance yourself at the expense of others. Right? This is self-evident that pride and selfishness leads to relational dysfunction. Right? If you are prideful and you are selfish in a relationship and you, your mindset and your actions lead to you making decisions and doing things to advantage yourself and disadvantage the other person, that is going to lead to dysfunction. It's self-evident, right? In college, I had this friend, and he always came to dinner with us. We'd go out to dinner, and I noticed that he never ordered food. You know, it was like strange. He ordered a water, maybe with lemon, you know? And so all sitting there, we all ordered food, and what became evident is that he waited until everybody was done eating. And then he'd be like, are you going to finish that? You know, and, and so he accumulated. He obviously did not care about germs, right? Half-eaten hamburger, he's going to go for it. So he'd bring all the food together, all the leftovers, and he would eat all the leftovers. And so what happened was, in time, it led to a lot of dysfunction. Why? Because when we went out to dinner, everyone felt guilty eating the food that they paid for, you know? It's like, you know, he's sitting right there and he's watching, you know. He's wondering, are you going to eat that last bite of the pickle because he wants it, you know what I mean? And it led to this dysfunction because he only was concerned with advantaging himself. He didn't care if it disadvantaged other people, if it made other people uncomfortable. He just wanted to advantage himself. And in healthy relationships are when two, both parties are looking to advantage the other person, not looking to advantage themselves. And then the second example not to follow is Esau, right? Don't follow Esau's example of being focused on your immediate satisfaction, right? He gives up something very valuable because he just wants to be satisfied in the moment. He just wants to fill his belly with stew. And this comes forward very clearly in romantic relationships especially, right? Where you may be in a romantic relationship and you think to yourself, I just want to be satisfied now, whether that be emotionally or sexually or whether that be protecting your time and your interests. You don't really, you're not really concerned as much with the other person. You just want to receive the things that make you feel good to satisfy yourself. And what happens here is it leads to dysfunction, right? Especially in dating relationships, you can tell in two ways. When a dating relationship is really prolonged, it's probably because there's one person in the relationship 
that is completely consumed with their immediate satisfaction. Because, why? How can you come to understand whether or not God is calling you to give all of yourself over to somebody else if you're not willing to give over any of your immediate satisfaction in the moment? It's really hard to come to understand that, right? It's really hard to understand whether or not God is calling you to give your entire life to somebody if you're not willing to give small things. If you're consumed with wanting to satisfy yourself in the relationship instead of thinking about the other. So there's two examples here not to follow. And the one to follow is from Jacob. It says this, do follow Jacob's example of valuing the things of God. He values the birthright, right? He has a wrong method because he just wants to advantage himself and disadvantage his brother, but he has a healthy understanding of something that God values, and that is the birthright in this family. And so the question is, what does God value about relationships? There's a lot of things, but I pulled out three things that I think is clear all throughout Scripture, and that's God values unity, he values forgiveness, and he values mercy. So this, here's the question. How do you overcome dysfunctional relationships? Well, you build unity, you seek forgiveness, and you're merciful. You be merciful. You may be thinking this right now, right? Maybe you're writing down notes, you're writing down build unity, seek forgiveness, be merciful, and you're like, okay, I'm going to do these things. You know, it's going to happen, and all the dysfunctional relationships are going to get better. And then you think to yourself, wait a second. The reason these relationships are dysfunctional is because it's so hard to do those things with that person. It's really hard for me to build unity with that person. It's why there's dysfunction. It's really hard for me to seek forgiveness with this person because of what they've done. It's really hard for me to be merciful because I'm nervous that they may take advantage of me if I'm merciful. So how do I find the strength to overcome? Because I surely can't do it in my own strength. Because if I try to do it in my own strength, most likely you are going to do the same thing that would happen to me if I try to overcome dysfunctional relationships in my life, in my own strength, I'm going to end up acting just like Jacob or Esau by either looking to just care for my immediate satisfaction or look to advantage myself and disadvantage the other person. So how do I find strength to overcome dysfunctional relationships? What comes by remembering and applying the gospel to your heart and then to your relationships? You remember and you apply the gospel to your heart and to your relationships. There's a quote on the front of your worship program. Tim Keller says this. He says, God sees us as we are. He loves us as we are. And he accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. You allow that to, to saturate your mind and your heart for a second. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are accepted. Even though you are like Jacob and Esau like me. And we are consumed with wanting to fulfill ourselves. We are consumed wanting to advantage ourselves and disadvantage other people, especially in our relationship with God. Right? Our relationship with God, before the grace of God that was poured out in our life, was very dysfunctional. Right? We were consumed with wanting to satisfy ourselves and all of our different questions and all of our different issues. We were consumed with advantaging ourselves. We were not nearly consumed with the things of God and what he desired for us. And yet, a dysfunctional relationship between us and God has been made functional by the work of Jesus Christ, by his death and his resurrection, and that grace that has been applied to you and to me through faith. You see, this is what the gospel reminds us. 
See, Jesus not only desired in his heart to build unity with you, but he took the steps necessary to ensure that you would in fact be united with him by going to the cross on your behalf. Jesus not only decided in his heart to forgive you, but he took the steps necessary to ensure that your forgiveness would not be temporary, but permanent and eternal by giving his perfect life over for your imperfect life. And Jesus not only determined in his heart to be merciful to you, but he proved his mercy by going to the cross to gather you together in unity with him and provide eternal forgiveness through his death and his resurrection. Those are acts of mercy. See, a dysfunctional relationship to, to see victory and to overcome that begins with these three things, right? First, you seek to be merciful to the other person, which then leads to seeking forgiveness, and then lastly builds unity with them. This is the gospel sequence that we're reminded of, which leads to the hardest part, right? As you let this saturate your mind, first you apply the gospel to your mind of what Jesus has done for you, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his grace, that you are united with him because of what he has done and not what you've done. When this, hit, when this affects your mind and your heart, the gospel compels you to apply it to your relationships. And that's what's hard, right? The gospel compels you not just to determine in your heart to be merciful, but to actually be merciful. The gospel compels you not just to decide to forgive, but to actually seek forgiveness. The gospel compels you to not only desire unity with that person that is dysfunctional in your relationship, but to actually build it with them. And the strength of applying these things to your heart and to your mind and into your relationship comes through Jesus. It comes through remembering and applying the gospel the good news of God's mercy and his love and his grace that has been given to you, just like it was given to Jacob, not because you earned it, not because of the family you were born into, not because of the culture you were raised in, simply because God chose to pour out his mercy and his love upon you, and he's been faithful to you. And when this affects your heart and your mind, you realize that God is compelling you to act like Jesus to that person that you are in a dysfunctional relationship with. And here's the beauty. We mentioned this last week. It's our, our theme verse. That when you're seeking to do this in those relationships that are dysfunctional, Jesus says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And when he says that, he means all things. He's overcome even those relationships that are dysfunctional in your life. The coworker, the friend, the family member, the romantic partner. He has overcome that dysfunction. And the way that you overcome it it's not in your own strength, but it's in the strength of Christ who is with you and who has already overcome it as you apply him to your heart and your mind and you sense and gain a wisdom of how you might apply that to your relationship. Let's pray.